Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thanks for spending part of your day or night with us. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review and maybe a nice comment if you're so inclined, just so we know the podcast is helpful to you and your writer's journey, and we really do appreciate it. Now on to the show. Today on the podcast, our guest is a TV writer and producer who has worked on Superstore, Disenchanted, and is showrunner of the upcoming Netflix adult animated series, Hoops. She is M. Dixon. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Em. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you doing during the pandemic? What are you doing to keep sane? Um, You know, some days I'm saner than others. <laughs> it's been an oddly busy time, uh, sort of development-wise, I think because people are trying to figure out what's next. So... Mm-hmm. I either have really busy days that are full of, you know, video calls and emails, or I just have um, very sort of silent days where I'm discovering new hobbies. I think that's how I'm coping. I bought a banjo. That's been a weird <laughs> thing I've done. Yeah. I, you know, I uh, take a lot of walks, just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to, trying to occupy the time. You said you bought a banjo. Now, I, are you an experienced banjoist? Like, have you no. played banjo in the past or are you just learning? No, I literally don't think I've held a banjo prior oh, wow. to prior to this quarantine. But um, I was like, you know what? I should do, I should do something with my time. Uh, and why I went to banjo, I can't <laughs> speak to. I'm sure that's a it's an issue I can unpack on my own time. But um, I was like, sure, let's let's give the banjo a whirl. And uh, you know, slow and steady, it gives me something to to do. Please tell me the first song you're learning on the banjo is the Rainbow Connection. For sure, 100%. I mean, that was the, I was like, I'm not leaving quarantine until I can play Rainbow Connection on the banjo. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Truthfully. So, no, yeah, I, I love that. Know? I love that. I, I was half joking, but I was kind of, my fingers were crossed because, yeah, I mean. No, I'm a huge, huge, huge Muppets fan. So it was, uh, I was like, this is, this is what we do with the banjo. Right. I didn't, you know, I don't even know what other songs are available on banjo. Yeah. That was really the focus, so. I guess we just all have to watch some more uh, Coen Brothers movies to give you some ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. So let's get into your background a little bit. Uh, what is your background? Where are you from originally? And how did you end up here in L.A.? I'm from uh, New Jersey. I'm from Tom's River, New Jersey. And I moved to New York when I was uh, 18 to go to a terrible acting conservatory. Um, at that point, I was still really focused on... I knew I wanted to do... TV and I, but I wasn't sure um, how I wanted to do it, sort of in what capacity I wanted to do it. I was really focused on directing at that time, and mm. I had somebody really smart tell me that a good way to uh, be a good director is to know how to speak to actors and how to sort of the language of acting. And uh, I had a vague interest in in acting, so I, I went to an acting conservatory, um, and then sort of slowly through that, I got more into to comedy and, and sketch comedy, and I had a sketch comedy duo for a minute. And then through that, I got into stand-up. And I was doing stand-up um, full-time at, at one point. I was doing it full-time for about three years. And through stand-up, I met um, an executive who just really liked my stand-up and said, you know, I'd love to read your pilot sometime. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely a thing I have. Uh, I didn't have a pilot. It hadn't even <laughs> occurred to me to it hadn't even occurred to me to write a pilot. But I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should I should do that. And um I was still in New York, but a a good friend of mine uh, who would ultimately you know go on to become my writing partner, uh, she had moved out to L.A. and she was just my first phone call when uh, I realized that I was going to have to write a pilot. And I just I called her and I said, you know, I have this set amount of time that I'm not touring. I had like I think in total like five days that I could come to L.A. 
And I said, you know, I'm going to come out there and, and can we write this pilot? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I flew out to LA. We wrote uh, that pilot, which still, we wrote it in four days, which at the time I was like, yeah, that's how long it must take to write a TV pilot. Now I know that that was like an insane undertaking. That we did. <laughs> and we, we wrote the pilot. And then through that, it just sort of opened up uh, different doors for us that we hadn't even considered. We ended up liking the pilot so much that I don't know if I ever gave it to that executive. Oh. Uh, if I did, it certainly wasn't the focus anymore. But we ended up getting paired with a a different producer, not for that project, but but she really liked the script. And she asked us to try to go out and pitch and sell a different project with her, which we did that ultimately ended up selling. Uh, so I was able to get a lit agent through that. And then it became, you know, if you really want to work, if you want to do this, you should be out in LA. And I still really went back and forth between New York and LA. Um, for the first two years, I would come out and I would stay Jenny, my writing partner, I would stay with her, and then go back to New York. And, and this went on for a while until um, we got our first freelance script on a show. And even that I thought, okay, I'm going to come out to LA for two weeks and, and do this script and go in the writer's room. And then I'm going to go home to New York. And, and at the end of the two weeks, the showrunner asked if we would stay on the show. Cool. Um, and I had to be like, yeah, can I go home and get all my stuff first? Um, so I took a week and, and flew back to New York and, and moved out to LA the next week. And you'd mentioned your stand-up background and your sketch comedy background. And I noticed not all, but a lot of of comedy writers, that's how they got their start. They were either discovered doing stand-up or sketch, or it just obviously is part of their, their comedy learning process. Other than obviously that's how sort of you were discovered. How has that affected your writing? Like how is being a stand-up or having worked in sketch comedy impacted your writing process? Well, I don't want to oversell my sketch comedy, uh, my time in sketch comedy. That was super limited compared mm -hmm. to the time <laughs> I spent in stand-up. So I feel more uh, able to talk about the effect of stand-up. But I think um, it certainly made me a stronger joke writer. Um, and I think it made me comfortable pitching in a room in a way that I think maybe young writers who aren't stand-ups or who don't perform, it, it, you know, it's a different... In a comedy room, you're you're pitching jokes out loud all the time. You know, it, there's some are getting rejected, some are hitting, some are hitting but not going in the script. Um, and I think I was more comfortable doing that, having having been a stand-up. And I also think it makes you trust your instincts more. You know, when you're doing when you're doing stand-up, it's just you up there, and you have to be sure that the thing that you're saying is at least funny to you. Right. Um, so I think that was really helpful in a room setting. I, I don't know that I expected it to be that helpful, but I was really happy when I started getting into comedy rooms that I had had that time and, and skill set. And with the rise of, of single cam comedy, as opposed to uh, multicam, there seems to be, obviously jokes are what make comedies funny, but there, there seems to be a difference between multicam comedy where the jokes are fast and furious and single cam where jokes aren't necessarily just, uh, you know, uh, set up and punchline, set up and punchline. There's oftentimes visual gags and all kinds of different things you can do in a single cam that you can't always do in a multi-cam. For somebody who may be funny in a, a different sense, not necessarily as good of a joke writer, is there room for them in a comedy uh, room in terms of like working on a, a comedy or should they just continually work at their joke writing? Like, I know every writer's room is different and every writer's room has, you know, every writer has different strengths and that's how they all sort of fit into the writer's room. 
are there comedy writers who are much better at say, story structure or idea generation than jokes? And if so, uh, how does that work? Sure. I mean, you, you bring up a really good point in, in single cam versus multicam, which I think in single cam, very rarely are you seeing a joke with sort of a setup and a punchline, right? It's usually coming from a character place. It's usually, you know, the way a joke is delivered. It's usually, you know, an awkward moment. Not not to undercut. Obviously, single cams are packed with comedy. It's just a different construction. Mm-hmm. So I think... I think if you're not a um, if you're not a joke writer, if you don't identify like as a joke writer, then single cam is probably a more comfortable environment for you. If if you not to say that if you're not on a multicam that there's not room for people that are stronger at story or stronger at structure. I think, but I do think the expectation in a multicam room is at some point you're going to write a good joke, right? <laughs> right. So I think. Um, yeah, I think it can be harder on, on a multicam if that's just not if that's not how your brain is wired. But I also really like single cams that manage to sneak in sort of a regular joke formula every once in a while. You know, the the sample that I was just talking about that we wrote um, initially the the biggest comment, uh, biggest compliment that I feel like we continually got on it was, oh, this is a single cam, but it's written like a multicam. It's written, and which at that time we didn't know anything about script structure. Um, we literally wrote the script off of, uh, Jenny was out in LA working as an actor. So she had a script that she had gone through, um, like screen testing on at MTV or something. And we looked at that script like page by page to figure out how to write our script. So we were very out of our depth and we wrote, um, a script like we knew how to write or we knew how to watch TV. Um, so I, I think, I think whatever your strengths are, there's there's room in in a comedy room or a drama. But we've seen so much crossover now with with dramedies. You know, if you're a funny person, but you don't necessarily want to, you know, write blows to scenes, and and you just want to sort of exist in in character comedy, there's single cams, there's dramedy. I think you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. You have an upcoming uh, show on Netflix coming out, an adult animated series called Hoops, and you're the showrunner of that show, which is uh, pretty exciting. It's a big step. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you what that transition was like, going from working on staff on a number of shows, as you have, to the big chair. I mean, being the showrunner of your own show, uh, what is that like and, and what sort of, of curve, learning curve, was that for you? Yeah, Um it's definitely it's definitely different. Um, I will say, prior to Hoops, um, I was a co-executive producer on Disenchantment, which is Matt Groening's animated Netflix series. Mm-hmm. And um, just a real credit to Matt and and Josh Weinstein, who were the showrunners, was that you know they really uh, they really let it be sort of an all hands on deck production. I got to I had never done animation before Disenchantment and. I had the opportunity to learn and do so much on that show. I was, you know, directing all the records. Um, Jenny and I were cutting the first, you know, audio tracks of episodes. And so I was really, really involved in the actual production of the show, which is not something that I had really ever done previously. So um, because of that and because, you know, often, you know, we were running like the rewrite rooms and, and we were, um, just sort of really involved in the show in a way that I hadn't been 
uh, previously on projects, it, it made the transition a little smoother because to some extent I had already done a lot of the, the parts of the job. Um, but it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a transition in terms of, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer. I, I identify as a, as a writer, uh, mm -hmm. primarily, and there's a lot less actual writing that you can get to do in show running sometimes because, right. you know, being in the writer's room is a part of what you're doing all day. So, you know, occasionally I would find myself missing the, um, the, you know, being in a room and, and pitching and, and doing that aspect of it. I got to do that less than I would like to do, but I also, um, I just, you know, I don't know if it's my theater nerd background or I really like that, you know, let's put on a show sort of mentality. So I, I like all the aspects of show running. I like, um, I, I like sort of all the different tasks and the different hats that you get to wear. And, but yeah, it, it was definitely, it was definitely a transition. Mm -hmm. And with the coronavirus, the pandemic going on, how has it been working on an animated series as opposed to because you've also worked on live action and i'm sure you have lots of friends that work in live action uh the production process uh has it been easier or just as challenging um and i ask that because obviously you still have a bunch of people working on your show but verse i don't know how it works in terms of like all the animators and all the post people working if they're still able to work, how they're able to work versus like being on set in production and how that whole process works uh, during this process. I don't know if you've been through that yet. Like if, if hoops was finished before that, or if you're in anything developing anything or working on anything now. Um, but how do you think working on an animated series will differ than from live action during this time? Yeah, I think animation is the only thing that's still really happening right now uh, mm -hmm. because because post can be done remotely. And a lot of the times, even when you're even when there's no virus uh, and you're in animation and you're on post on a show, there are people that are sort of doing it all over that are working on your show and are not necessarily in the building. Um, so I think animation has been one of the things that's continued to be able to work. And I because of that, I know, I know that development on the animation side is is sort of at an all time high. People are buying animated shows like crazy right now because it's sort of virus proof. And you know, you can record remotely if you have to. You can do all the artwork remotely. You can do post remotely. So, yeah, I I think not that anything is sort of. Um, you know, fully virus proof. These are insane circumstances that all shows are in, but I think animation has a lot more wiggle room in terms of what you can do remotely. What about children's animation versus adult animation? Uh, for the, for, for those who don't watch animated shows, they may not sort of differentiate between what's on. I, I don't want to say Saturday morning cartoons because they're not really on Saturday morning anymore. I don't think, I don't really know. Uh, but you know, <laughs> One's designed for kids to sell toys and things versus what would literally be a sitcom. You could swap out the cartoon characters for animated and for uh, uh, live action actors and or CGI, some mix, whatever. Like you could take King of the Hill and throw in real actors and it'd be sort of the same show. Although I think we're so used to it being animated, it'd be weird. But you could do that in theory. What are the differences between children's animated shows 
and adult animated shows, both creatively and production wise? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can't really speak too much to uh, children's animation. I've never really, I've never worked in that space, but, but I, I would assume, you know, production wise, they're probably fairly similar. And I think writing wise, you know, you kind of said it, you should be able to take a script, whether it's a Simpsons script or a, you know, King of the Hill script and, and put it up against a sitcom script and have that amount of laughs and also tonally be talking to the same audience. And so I think in terms of writing, writing an adult animated show is very similar to, or should be very similar to writing a live action mm -hmm. show. You know, when I just, when I was staffing the room for hoops, I don't think, I don't think we had a single writer in that room that had done animation before. I'm, wow. I'm racking my brain right now, but I, I don't think we had a writer um, other, other than, yeah, we didn't have any writers that had done animation before. So, you know, it's, it should be, it should be comparable to live action. I think with um, children's cartoons, I think maybe it relies more on like visuals than actual sort of the same way that a child live action show would, you know? So right. I, yeah, I, I think, I think when I'm staffing or when I'm looking for writers, I'm still just looking for great scripts and jokes and great characters. Now I'm assuming that with, with animated adult animated series versus live action sitcoms, that because you have the ability to have a, a more wide-ranging uh, palette of visual gags, because I guess there's, in my mind anyway, having not written for animation or worked in animation, uh, less restrictions on what you can show, obviously, in terms of censorship and things like that, there's still obviously issues. But in terms of what your mind can create versus what you can literally shoot live action, you know, that doesn't require CGI, that eats into your budget... Uh, is, is there, uh, a, a challenge to come up with it? Maybe I'm phrasing it incorrectly. Is, is it really freeing to be able to sort of write what you want or is it sort of more of a challenge because now you, because it's animation and because you're, there's so many great animated shows out there these days who really push the boundaries. Is it a challenge to what can we come up with that's new and interesting uh so is it more of a freedom or is it more of a, a a stressful thing to to do uh i think it depends on the tone of the show sure because with with disenchantment it was freeing because that's a fantasy show right so you want to be able to write those big sequences um and have it feel big and have it feel you know Game Game of Thronesy, uh, without having to worry about, you know, budget and time constraints and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so for that, if it, it felt freeing and if and it fit the tone to sort of, you know, that show has magic and, um, yeah, it was nice to not have that constraint. Something like Hoops, which is more, I would put it more in the vein of say like, um, Bob's Burgers or. King of the Hill, something that's, you know, it's everyday people having everyday lives. You're, uh, I didn't feel as wrapped up in how far can we push this visually because it just didn't match sort of the tone and story of the show. You're still wanting to do interesting things visually the same way on a live action show, you would want to stage this, the scene a certain way or, or make the set sort of appealing in a certain way. But 
but not to the extent we definitely pushed more limits with disenchantment as far as making sure we were writing things into the script that lived up to sort of the fantasy and visual aspect of the show. Disenchantment right. is also just a beautiful show. Like if you just watch it, the animation quality is, is really beautiful and, and leaned into sort of that fantasy world. So you want to match that. Right. Right. How different is it writing, uh, doing a show for Netflix versus like working on Superstore for NBC? It's very different in terms of um, the note process. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's just last notes at Netflix. Um, whether, you know, I think there's pros and cons to that, but it's, it's just a different process. Um, and I had sort of had a weird stopover because coming from, you know, I did, I did two multicams and, and superstore, which were very, you know, all hands on deck. There were network notes, there were studio notes. Um, you know, one of the shows I did was, um, a pilot. So, you know, nothing gets noted like a broadcast pilot. So, um, it was a lot of notes to then go to Netflix where, you know, it wasn't just Netflix. It was a Matt Groening show on Netflix. Matt, you know, Matt's studio was the studio. So it went from sort of all the notes to, to very, very few notes, which was a nice transition. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then over to hoops, which was a little more, um, a little more all hands on deck and Netflix was, was involved for sure. And, and, and noted the show and really was involved from the story phase of, of episodes. And so I think, I think it depends who your execs are and where you're sort of fitting into the fold at Netflix. And I think they have over time become, I don't want to comp them to broadcast because I think I, I think broadcast is always going to be where you get the most notes, but, I think Netflix has become a little more mainstream in terms of giving notes than maybe they used to be. I don't think they're as hands off as they first were when everybody wanted to sell to Netflix because it felt like, you know, full creative freedom. I think right. there's still a lot of freedom there, but I don't think it's I think it's become a little bit more like it would be if you were at maybe, say, a cable network. And about Netflix or non-network television how do you work in acts? Is it exactly the same? Do you have a lot more leeway in terms of your act breaks? Because you don't have commercials, obviously breaking up like you, your show, like you do with a network show or a cable show that has commercials, not premium cable. Uh, so are act breaks handled in the same way, you know, act outs and everything. And also running time. Is your running time a little more flexible? Because, you know, some shows on HBO, they're, 47 minutes sometimes or 63 they just for the same series and it just it's whatever they decide to make it uh, mm -hmm. is that the, the case that you found as well with netflix shows the running time is definitely more flexible yeah. um there's usually a conversation you know as long as it as long as we end as long as each episode averages out to this amount of time some episodes are going to be a little longer some are going to be a little shorter that's i think that's pretty common um across the board and was certainly my experience I think, um, I think in terms of act breaks, it it depends on the showrunner. It depends on um, how they want to see, you know, scripts constructed. Another thing is sort of if you take what I found is people are still just used to scripts being formatted a certain way. Mm -hmm. It sounds so silly, but it, it's true. So if you 
you know, if you decide, okay, we're not going to do any act breaks, um, I think you're noted differently. I think people sort of read the script and take it in differently. I found that if you sort of adhere to act breaks, whether or not we see them on screen, just sort of the normal way that people are used to reading a script and reading story, I think it can go a lot further, if that makes sense. Like it just is more easily digestible. Um, and, and then you're just mindful of it when you're translating it to the screen that just because that moment is an act break doesn't necessarily mean that we're cutting away or that, you know, we're going to black. It's just sort of finding those moments in the story to, it just helps you keep structure. I like to keep them in, um, because I think from a storytelling point and from a structure point of view, it just gives you those mile markers that you need. And then when we put it on the screen, we can sort of work around it. And talking about act breaks, uh, what what is your preferred act break uh, setup? You know, three acts, four acts, four acts in a teaser, cold open, all these kinds of things. Um, in, you're talking about in hoops or just in general, like just sort of in general. But I guess uh, you know, also with what you've worked in, what what do you find is most natural for you in terms of story time? I'm sure it, it depends on what you're actually writing. But maybe just sort of a generalization. Yeah, I mean, generally, I think it's, for me, it's usually cold open, three acts, and a tag. And I wanted to talk to you maybe a little bit about the development process. And without going into too much details about specifics, you know, things you have worked on or things you may be working on currently, but just sort of in general. uh, I've noticed in features, a lot of it comes from either IPs currently, or it's developed like Disney, developed in-house uh, because they're huge, huge ventures, and for whatever reason, they like to do things that they know either, again, from an IP or from somebody that's developing it with the executives in-house and things like that. But TV seems a lot more uh, like animated TV, seems a lot more more like any television in that it's developed in a lot of the same way. Is that the case? Is, is are, are animated series developed in the same way as live-action sitcoms? Yeah, I mean, I... I... I think so. I've only uh, personally, you know, I didn't, I didn't create or develop hoops. I was brought Mm -hmm. in as a showrunner. Ben Hoffman created hoops. So I wasn't involved in the development process of that show. I have since had um, an animated show in development somewhere that, yeah, I mean, it was very similar to everything else I've done development wise has been live action. So that process was very similar I think the only difference that you deal with when you're out with an animated show is, you know, the question of why is this animated? You know, why, why is this a world that we can't shoot live action? And the, you know, the answers will differ. Um, You know, sometimes it's because it's a big fantasy like disenchantment or sometimes it's, you know, something like Bob's burgers. It can't be a live action show. Those those kids can't age, you know? So there's different reasons for it, but I think that is a question that comes up in development. But I think otherwise, the the process is largely the same. Right. For a newer writer who may be trying to pitch their own animated series, and I know it's, it's difficult, obviously, for any writer to uh, get a lot of uh, traction when, when pitching a show, but especially for newer writers, um, obviously, when you staff the first couple of years, you're not even allowed to develop, but... Uh, and it's difficult to get sort of traction as a newer writer. But for those who may get the opportunity or maybe looking to 
hone their skills before they're given the opportunity. What sort of advice would you have for a newer writer who has an animated show specifically uh, that they're interested in pitching? Although I guess the advice could be good for any series if you had that as well. But like for animated, if they're trying to pitch an animated series to a network or a producer, an exec, whoever, what sort of advice would you have for them? Are there any tips? Well, I think, you know, you, you sort of mentioned um, the biggest tip that I usually give in there already, which I do think people focus on the idea of pitching a network or a studio. And mm-hmm. I think especially if you're a newer writer, even if you're even if you're not, I mean, I still do it. But if especially if you're a newer writer, you can't really overlook the importance and the significance of production companies yeah. and what what having a production company in your corner can do for you as far as um just validating you to a network. Look, every network, every studio that buys a show is taking a gamble on a project and on a writer. And the better you can make them feel about the gamble, the better chance you have of, of you know, getting your show purchased. So aligning with a producer, somebody that has a good track record in the space that you're interested in can go a long way. And I also just find that traditionally development people at production companies are more likely to sit down with with newer writers or writers in general than say a network. You know, I think, I don't want to say it's an, an easy door to get into. It obviously has its own challenges, but I do think it's easier than say getting a pitch meeting at Fox. Um, right. So I think, I think being aware of the space that you're working in, you know, there's, there's a business side to this. You know, we all want to just focus on the creative, but there is a business side to this and, and being aware of shows that are out that feel sort of like the show you want to make, whether that's tonally or visually and finding the production companies that are associated with that and, and trying to align yourself with them. I do also think if you're a newer writer, you know, and you have a really great idea that, that you want to sell, you should write it. You should write the script because I do think it's harder to pitch as a newer writer. It happens, you know, like I was, like I said before, we, we sold a show before we had ever staffed and and that was on pitch, but we were also aligned with a really great production company and we had a different sample that we could show them that wasn't too far off tonally from what we were pitching. Um, But just, you know, the, the more things you can put in the package to make yourself less of a risk, the, the further you'll get. I noticed that uh, you have been on Twitter. If you don't follow uh, M on Twitter, you definitely should. Uh, it's at it's it's at underscore M Dixon, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you should definitely follow M on Twitter. She's been accepting uh, script submissions randomly, one you know, first come first serve kind of thing, which I think is very cool on your part. Uh, I can't imagine what you're getting in terms of a response because I'm assuming it's insane. Uh, we we just it's did a log yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just did a logline competition and was going for about a week or so. We got 425 submissions, so I, I can't imagine like, hey, here I'm a showrunner. I'm reading scripts. Uh, I can't imagine what the submission process was like for you. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? Why did you decide to do this, and how has it been reading, and and what the response has been? Yeah, I mean, so we're obviously in the middle still of, I mean, in the middle, we're a year into this WGA, mm-hmm. ATA uh, standoff. So, and obviously, you know, I support the Writers Guild and, you know, I, I voted for this this situation that we're in, but I also realized that it's really difficult on a lot of writers, especially lower level writers. Um, 
and, and I don't know. I mean, I think I think the the great equalizer in this town uh, is a good script, and I right. think if you have a if you have a great script, but you can't get anybody to read it, I think it can be really discouraging and and really disheartening. And now we've sort of taken away um, for the time being a, a level of people that could read you and help you, you know, by by losing the agents. So I don't know. I just I wanted to. Um, I wanted to sort of do my part, I guess, and in, in whether that's and um, whether I'm actually able to to help someone. You know, if I get a script and I think it's great, you know, even if I'm not currently staffing something, I, I usually know somebody that's looking for somebody, and I can pass it on, or or I can give notes, or I I can be helpful. Um, you know, and I had a lot of writers over the years that were helpful to me when they didn't have to be, and uh, <laughs> you know, I I think it's a really valuable resource and I think if you're a younger writer and you don't have maybe access um the way that upper level writers do I, I feel like it's you know it's a small thing to to be helpful and then there's also a, a level of of selfish to it you know I've certainly found you know I found at least one writer for sure that I will hire on my next project through this script challenge That's so awesome yeah so you know I, it makes my job easier in the long run the more great scripts I read the the easier it's going to be next time I'm out staffing sure absolutely and how many submissions? I'd be maybe you didn't even count them, but how was that? How was the response? How you had mentioned you they filled your inbox was filled up pretty quickly, and the response was very very fast because it was first come first serve. You'd read the first script that came in that day after you posted it. Yeah. So typically, what I do is um, I'll post. I'll usually give my Twitter followers like an hour heads up just so they know it's coming, and then. I'll post a very specific kind of script I'm looking for, which is really just more for fun than to sort of, I think if I said, Hey, I'm looking for a half hour comedy, it's too wide a net. So I just, just for fun, I'll, you know, I'll make it specific. I'll say I'm looking for a half hour single cam with a female lead over 40 or, or whatever. Um, and then I'll post that and then I'll open up my direct messages. And the first person that sends me a script with that log line, um, I'll read that script. And by the, between the time of me posting it to me, you know, looking at my inbox, which is usually a minute or or two minutes, I'll have, you know, at that point I'll have 40 submissions. Um, (laughs) and then I, I, I'll just close my direct messages because one day I forgot to close my direct messages and I was on a call and I had all this and I like looked and I had like 300 messages in my Twitter inbox. And then I start to feel bad because, you know, there's people that sending it in thinking that, you know, they still have a shot. And really the person that won, you know, sent in a message two hours ago. So. (laughs) And along with that, you also, I know, offer uh, online classes just randomly. You decide. Everything I do is pretty random. It's just, it's just, do I feel like doing it right now? Right, right. Well, I'm sure you've got a lot going on and, but you want to do this stuff, but time is obviously, uh, not, not uh, unlimited. So, uh, you do this randomly. What, what are your online classes like? And, and do you have any coming up? Yeah. So I had started doing, um, basically what the classes I was doing it, um, specifically at, comedy festivals and comedy clubs and originally it was really geared towards stand-up comics that were interested in transitioning to tv writing Mm. Uh, Mm i and that was that was the focus on it for a while and that really just came from a place of you know i obviously have a lot of friends that are that are comics i came up in that world and 
it, you know, I kept getting the same questions from people and I kept getting, you know, sort of the same outreach from people. And I was like, all right, there's a way to, to streamline this. And there's a way to give people sort of the information that they're looking for. Um, and I also just, I had fun doing it. I, you know, I'm a TV nerd. I love writing TV. It's why I do it. So I, I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy talking about the process. And I think um, if you can take away some of the mystery about it for people, it just, it helps them. It levels the playing field in, in a way. And, you know, um, so yeah, I really was enjoying that. And then, um, I had, I can't remember the circumstances, but a show, a, a workshop got canceled that I was supposed to fly and do. And I was just like, what if I just throw this up online and I just sort of see what the response is if I just do it virtually. This was before the quarantine and mm -hmm. um I just got a great response online and then I was like oh I guess this is easier actually <laughs> you know it takes out overhead I don't have to charge people as much money to come to it and you know I just uh, streamlining again so um I've started doing them online sort of sporadically and I have one um I'm gonna do one on April 26th and then uh there'll probably be another one because we're all home right now right. so yeah. So, you know, I, I think there, I talk more in the workshops about um, process than I do say like script construction. I'm assuming if you're, if you're taking this class that you've written a script that you know how to write a script, I'm not going to talk to you about, you know, final draft. Um, right, right. But we do cover, you know, um, what should and shouldn't be in a writing sample. And a lot of this is just my, my personal opinion, but I also think um, you know, I have staff rooms. I am a showrunner. I have done development for God, nine years, seven years. So, um, I, I can talk about my personal experience in a way that I hope is helpful. And then I can also just sort of talk about industry standards and, um, sort of get into the minutia of it. And then I'm always careful to leave a good chunk of time at the end so that everyone can get their actual questions answered. Cause I know that I, I might not hit on everything. And I find that you know, if one person has the question, chances are a lot of people in that group have the question and, and just haven't asked. So they've been really fun. They've, they've been, um, they've been good for me. It's also been a good tool for me to, um, sort of just stay current about what people are writing and what people are worried about. And, um, yeah, they've been fun. And the best way to find out about any upcoming workshops you have or the script submission Thing Twitter. you do Twitter. It's at awesome. underscore M Dixon. So be sure to follow M on Twitter, and that's the best way to find out. Do you, you do have upcoming stuff? The workshops. Do you have upcoming script submissions coming up? Possibly. Yeah, we'll get we'll get back to the script challenge. Okay. I really, um, I just I just told my Twitter followers uh, recently. Like I was, there was a time when I was doing it daily. I was doing it yeah. like every day at two or three p.m. and I just, it just, you know, quarantine brain. It just got to the point where I was like, I can't read a script every day because I was also, you know, I'm still actively, you know, working in development. I have, you know, three shows right now. So it's like, I can't, I can't read everything. And I want to be sure that if I'm taking a script from somebody and I'm telling you that I'm going to read it and give it my attention and give it notes that, you know, I'm doing that. Right. So I, you know, it became, okay, I'm going to do it once or twice a week so that I can be sure that I can really spend the time on the script that this person um, deserves. So we'll see. Well, it'll, yeah. it'll be back for sure. Okay. So yeah, be sure to follow him on Twitter. Uh, that's a good thing. Um, li listener questions. We have some listener questions I wanted to run by you. 
David asked, did you write animation spec scripts before you broke in? I think you already sort of answered it, but he wanted to know, did you write animation spec scripts before you broke in? No, it it, it never occurred to me uh, to write animation or that I was going to write animation. I mean, truthfully, everything that I had done um, was live action. And we, my writing partner and I, we, we were not actively pursuing animation. I mean, no nothing against animation it just wasn't what we were uh just hadn't occurred to us and then we had the opportunity to go and meet on disenchantment and we i think we had a little bit of reservations just in the idea of um do all our skills transfer you know kind of what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. um but then we thought you know if you're going to do animation do it with matt graining so right uh Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, animation just had not even, I think, been on my radar before Disenchantment. And you even mentioned that on Hoops, you don't recall having hired somebody based on an animation script. Definitely not. I mean, I don't I don't want to accidentally be forgetting any of my writer's credits, but I also know that uh, it it was just not a prerequisite. Right. I think I think there are things that you can that things that if you've done animation can be helpful to you. Um, but they're so specific and every show and every writer's room is so different. Um, that I, I just personally, it doesn't feel like it matters to me. A great script and a good writer is a great script and a good writer. Uh, Damon asked, can you talk about animation writers being non WGA and how you feel about that? But also why is some animation WGA while others are not? I don't know too much about that, but, yeah, I think that's a little above my pay grade, but um, like I don't know if I, kids animation maybe non WGA some of it I don't know. There's a lot. There is a lot of animation that is not WGA. That yeah. is um, animation guild or just oh I see completely yeah. non union. But um, Disenchantment and Hoops are both WGA shows. I I don't I don't know why it exists. I don't think it's fair. I think uh, right. I think everyone should have you know if you're a writer you should have the protection that. Um, that the union can afford you. I I don't know. I don't know why it is more rampant in animation. I mean, my guess would be because, you know, if you're in live action and you have, if you're in live action, you have a lot of other guilds involved. You know, you have a director on everything that's in the DGA. All your actors are SAG. There's a lot more union sort of oversight on live Mm -hmm. action that that I guess is maybe easier to skip on animation so they can kind of skate um, in a way that you couldn't on a live action show. I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, I'm not a fan, but I, I don't know why it happens. Gotcha. Uh, Damon also asked, what are the working hours like on animation compared to a live action show? I'd imagine they're the same. Um, I think animation actually has better hours oh, okay. than a, well, there than you a go. live action show. Um, and that's just the... That's just the... Um, urgency that doesn't necessarily exist in animation you know if you're doing if you're doing a multi-cam uh, and you're doing a different episode every week and that show has to be ready to shoot on thursday night that script has to be ready come hell or high water oh. you're probably there really late tuesday and wednesday night getting That's it ready true. um versus animation where yes you have to get your scripts ready for a record but your whole cast might not be recording together you might not be recording that full episode that day 
you're also going to have a chance, you know, in two months to pick up whatever record you mixed, missed when the, the animatic comes back. So there's a lot more, um, it's just scheduling really like a, a live action show has, you know, a 20 week, um, writer's room and a little more post and pre-production An animated show. Yes. Typically has it. I mean, I don't even want to say typically has a 20 week writer room because you know, disenchantment was a much longer process, but if you're on an animated show, you're probably, if you're an upper level writer, you're probably on that show for almost a year. Wow. So you have, um, you have more time. And I think not to say that, you know, your showrunner might not, you know, maybe you are working till 10 o'clock every night, but I, I don't, I didn't feel that need as a showrunner and I didn't, our showrunner on disenchantment didn't feel that need. So, um, I think you just have a little more flexibility and because of that, you can have a little better hours. So it sounds like you have the same number of hours. It's just spread out in a longer period of time. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and I'd imagine also on a live action show, oftentimes writers will go to set and things like that. Uh, but And there's also time spent in post sometimes. But I, I'd imagine that your time may be spent a little differently. Maybe you spend a, lot, a little more time in pre-production and post than actual sort of quote shooting time recording time is that possibly the case yeah i mean and again you know i don't know what the process is across the board i can only speak to you know the two animated shows i've done but it's it's you know on a live action show if it's your episode you're going to go to set you're going to be there for that process it's pretty rare to have writers come to the records i mean the you can, I, I think it's valuable to have a writer come at least once to sort of see the process, but it's not, um, it's sort of happening the same time as the writer's room is happening and it's oh. happening. Um, so yeah, I think, I think your time is just spent a little differently. I think there's more, there's more time in the writer's room because there's less other places to be. Uh, Ramya asked, are there any major differences you've noticed between writing live action versus animation? We sort of covered a lot of that. Um, so maybe the next one, she also asked, what are your favorite sources of comedy inspiration? Ooh, um, I don't know why that question hit so hard. I was like, geez, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, um, well, I, I large, I always say that it's, it's hilarious to my family that I am, am the one that went into a career in comedy because I think I am arguably one of the least funny people in my family. I think my family <laughs> is, uh, my family, you know, everyone says they think they should have a reality show. I think my family actually would do quite well. Um, <laughs> so I don't, you know, I, I, I always joke and say like, I didn't know that people didn't talk like a sitcom until I was like 18 and went out into the world. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think I have a lot of inspiration at home. I uh-huh. also, um, you know, coming from, coming from stand up, uh, you know, watching a great stand up special or watching a great, watching great joke construction is usually the thing that will drive me to my laptop the fastest you know it makes me Mm -hmm. want to be writing um yeah I think I think I'm you know the the best compliment I can give somebody is when I watch a great joke whether it's on a show or stand-up and I get mad that I didn't think of it first or I didn't write it first so um yeah I think I'm just constantly sort of going back to the comedians and and the writers that that make me laugh and 
and hoping that inspiration strikes. Right. She also asked a couple more questions. Uh, what's the first thing when reading a pilot script that gives you an indication you're going to like the rest of it? Ooh, um, so many things just popped into my head about the opposite of that question. Okay. Like when, when do I know on page one that this probably isn't the script for me? But right. I want to answer the, the question that she asked. I think um, I pay a lot of attention to the action in a script, in a pilot script. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, I don't mean like action, like, you know, Chicago fire sequence action. I mean, are you setting the tone for me correctly? Do I know how to read this script correctly? Right. Um, so I think when a writer does a good job of that, of setting the scene and setting the, um, and is the first joke original and is it, is it character based or do I feel like I know these characters? You know, if as soon as, um, I always say, you know, in comedy scripts, I think something that people, uh, a misstep that a lot of newer writers make is every character has the same sense of humor. Every okay. character is talking like the showrunner. Do, so I'm looking for, have you managed to give each character a different point of view or a little bit different way of speaking? Um, so yeah, I think those are some of the early indicators that, that I'm looking for, but, but tone goes a long way. You know, it's like, it's like reading music, you know, do, are, have you, have you told me the right pace for how I should be reading this script? Right. Gotcha. Good answer. Um, uh, what other emotions do you think are important to try and elicit in an audience with a comedy script? What other emotion meaning beyond just laughter? I, yeah, I guess. Um, I don't, yeah. I mean, that's the, the question was framed. What other emotions do you think are important to try and elicit and maybe it's like, do you feel it's important to elicit other emotions rather than humor in a comedy script or maybe themes? I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the best I think the best comedy, whether it's in our life or in a script, can come out of sort of the worst moment, sure. <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> the worst moments or the worst um, the worst scenarios, sort of the more grounded a, a scene can be. You know, I think. Um, you know, Roseanne is, is one of my all-time favorite sitcoms and, you know, two episodes that come to me. First of all, my all-time favorite sitcom moment ever, uh, which I think speaks to this, is there's a great old episode of Roseanne where their dad has passed away. Roseanne and Jackie's dad has died. And Jackie, who's very devastated, and they're playing it very real, because Laurie Metcalf is a genius, but um, it's played very real and very grounded and then she has to get on the phone and call her aunt who is hard of hearing and tell her that uh, the father has passed away. And it goes from this very sad, emotional attempt at this phone call. And then as it goes on, you realize that the aunt is having a very hard time hearing her. So it escalates all the way to Jackie just screaming in the phone, you know, dad's dead. Um, (laughs) And what, and I mean, it's truly, I probably watch it once a month because I love it so much, but, um, that scene wouldn't be as funny if it didn't start from such an emotional place, such a grounded place. So I, I think, you know, the more relatable your characters are, the the more we're able to see all sides of them. The other thing I was going to reference is, you know, there's a Roseanne episode that deals with domestic abuse that deals with um, Jackie's boyfriend and, and uh, was abusive. And it's, it doesn't sound like the script for a great comedy, but you watch it. And because they handle those moments with sensitivity, they're allowed to be 
funny in a way that it wouldn't be if you just played that whole thing broad. Right. So I think, um, yeah, I really gravitate towards um, letting your characters be fully rounded humans. They're not joke machines, you know? Right. Absolutely. Okay. Some fun questions just to throw in to sort of wrap everything up with a laugh since uh, this is, uh, we've talked a lot about comedy. Uh, in video games, the M means rated for mature audiences. Uh, what video game would your life be? Oh, God. I don't know if I know video games enough to answer this question. <laughs> um, can, like, can I just say, like, Mario Kart? Absolutely. Just, yeah, let's just do that. That Absolutely. sounds fun. Yeah. Um, M is the postal code for what Canadian metropolis? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, Montreal? Toronto. Mm. <laughs> um, bonus points M is also the postal code for area for what district in the what or in for various districts I should say in what part of the UK can you name one so M is a postal code for various districts in the UK uh, can you name one as a bonus question Manchester correct there you go and uh, what? who made the best Bond M the Bond boss M I should say Ray Fiennes Dame Judi Dench uh, David Niven, Robert Brown, or someone else? I'll be honest. I I almost uh, have no idea what we're talking about, but I'm not going to not pick Dame Judi Dame Dench. Judy Dench. Sure, of course, of course. So, I mean, we got to go with Judi Dench, and yeah. I'm just going to assume that I'm correct. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, James Bond, the, his boss, is just the, they're given the moniker M, like you. Um, I like it. There you go. And, and Dame Judi Dench, you can't not pick Dame Judi Dench yeah. for just about anything. Uh, be sure to follow M on Twitter. It's at underscore. Don't forget the underscore M Dixon. Uh, do you have any other social media or a website? No, not that I'm like active. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think at one point I had, I definitely had a website that was more active when I was doing stand up, but I do stand up a lot less these days. So I think Twitter is, is the best place to find me. Uh, so that's it for this time. Thanks for coming on today, M. I really appreciate your time. Are you going to stick around for the unscripted show for a few minutes? Sure, let's do it. Cool. And as always, thank you guys for listening. We do this podcast to help you writers in your journey. So we appreciate you tuning in as always. Uh, thanks again. And remember, keep writing and we'll see you next time.